Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. There's a person, they're born with a clubbed foot. It's clubbed pretty badly. They have to have it casted and cared by doctors over years. And this person not only has clubbed feet, but they also have a hip when they're born that's out of joint. It has to be broken. It has to be reconstructed. And on the other side of that, that leg is about a half inch shorter or an inch. I don't know how much, uh, but it's shorter than the other leg. And that person comes up to you and they say, hey, I want to go run a half marathon. Right? I want to go run a half marathon. You would probably be more worried for them and begin to doubt them rather than be like, oh yeah, that sounds great. You'd you'd have some hesitation in you. Right? However, you also might risk grossly underestimating them. Right? There's real barriers there, real potential barriers for a person in that situation. And so you, you could justify having doubts and concerns. You could justify, you could justify maybe not being immediately excited about that and under, potentially underestimating them. Well, if you don't know, some of you probably do. I'm talking about my wife. This is Brenda. <gasps> right? <laughs> This is Brenda. She was born with club foot, dislocated hip, and she didn't just run one half marathon, she ran two of them and then also a 20K, right? I wouldn't doubt another if she said that she was going to. And and the reason I wouldn't doubt it, the reason I wouldn't underestimate her, the reason I wouldn't be tempted to be more concerned than celebratory if she brought that to me is because I know her. I know her. When I see her do housework, when I see her get up and go to work, a 12-hour day at the hospital, and come home to be a mom, and I can see that she's got a limp that's all of a sudden visible, that she hides really well most of the time, and she doesn't complain, and she just goes. I, I know her well enough. I see all the little things in her life that mount up to me to be like, well, that makes perfect sense. If that's what she says she wants to do, I not only know she has the ability to do it, I know that she will carry that out because that's just the kind of person she is. And I've seen her do it. The the reason I bring this up is not just to make you all ooh and ah at my wife, though that's good and I want you to. The point of this, the point of me saying this is that when... When you don't know somebody, it's very easy to underestimate them, right? And here in our text, we see up to this point in Mark, Jesus has been establishing his authority as God. He's been establishing his authority through speaking, through acting with authority. He goes into the temple and takes authoritative action, teaching and driving people out, criticizing what's going on in the temple. We've seen Israelite leaders in opposition to Jesus displaying ignorance of who He is, underestimating who Jesus is. 
They're not just they're not just rejecting Jesus. The reason they're rejecting him is because they've underestimated him. Rooted, and that underestimation is rooted in their absolute ignorance of who he is, and not only who he is, but who God is. When you don't know somebody, you're concerned at best. You're opposed normally, if not outright, rejecting them, especially when they're doing something significant like Jesus is doing here. They not only are ignorant of him, but they not, and not only reject him, but they seek to stop him and even are conspiring to kill him. And this week, as we come into the passage that Isaac read for us, Jesus reveals that this rejection comes out of their ignorance. Ignorance of who he is, ignorance of who God is. Showing them as those who, and catch this, the religious leaders are the ones who don't know God. And the point is very simple. This is Mark's point through these, through these, uh, through these verses. Knowing God produces delight in Jesus' authority. That's what, that is what Jesus is getting at here. Knowing God produces delight in the establishment and the furtherance of Jesus' authority. Jesus wants you to see that joyful submission to His authority emerges out of the knowledge of God, of knowing Him, of knowing Jesus. And so what Jesus is trying to do is not only establish His authority here, He's also trying to help us know Him so we would look at Him and be like, yes, that makes sense. Yes, I need to submit to that authority as it comes rather than oppose Him, question Him, etc., as we might do at, well, as these leader, religious leaders do. And he shows us this in two ways. He shows us Jesus reveals himself. He reveals God. He reveals himself as God, as King of kings and Lord of life. Those are our two points this morning, that Jesus is King of kings, and second, he is Lord of life. So, verses 13 to 17 show us that Jesus is King of kings. And, and and he, he, he labors to help us. He labors to help these, these religious leaders and the crowd around them watching this conversation to know something more about him. They want, he wants to give them the intimate details that I would see about my wife. He wants them to see that he is king of kings. Now, as we've said already, the Jewish authorities underestimated him. They think they can get him to self-incriminate. They think they can get him to hang himself if they give him enough rope. They think they can pull a fast one on him and stop him. And we see here that they try to do that. They set a trap for Jesus. And this becomes an opportunity for him to not only turn the tables on them, but to educate them about who God is and who he is. So in verse 13, we see... Uh, we see uh, a very interesting cabal of people approach Jesus. It says there, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, this is, a, this is interesting because these two aren't friends, the Pharisees and the Herodians. This would be much like a group of Democrats and Republicans, like the most extreme Democrats and Republicans uniting together in opposition against a foe. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees were against Rome. 
and for the national sovereignty of Israel. They believed that this was God's nation and no other uh, country, no other world power has the authority or, or, or right to come in and exercise rule over them. Well, the Herodians took a different view. The Herodians, if you know, if you can tell by the name, these are the people that are in support of King Herod. So these are like the, the political party of people that are in support of the political regime in Israel that has aligned itself with Rome. They're playing nice with Rome, right? And so these Herodians are a pro-Roman political faction that's also tied up into the leadership of temple. And so you've got these two factions that are basically at odds with one another. Rome is occupying their land. Some people are for it, some people against it. And we find the Pharisees and Herodians on different sides of that aisle. And yet, they're united. So this is immediately, this is suspicious. What are these guys up to? And we see in verse 13, right away, and uh, in the second half, that they have malicious intent in their, in their unity. It says there, the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. To trap him in his talk. They want to trap him. They want to get him to say something, to uh, declare something that would, that would get him in trouble. Because this is a tactic to get him to basically say something that would get him canceled, we might say, in our culture today. And so verse 14, we see the trap that they set him. And this is an interesting trap. They, they do it the same way that I try to get my dog to come into the house when she sees a squirrel in the backyard. Ruthie will go out into the backyard. She'll see a squirrel and she will be locked on for two hours until that squirrel either leaves or something more interesting happens. And so if I just open up the door, I'm like, Ruthie, come inside. I don't exist. She only sees a squirrel. So what do I do to get her attention? Ruthie, I talk in a higher pitch, nice voice. I whistle. I do all kinds of things to butter up. I'll grab the treat container and shake it at the door and be like, come get a treat. I do what I can to get her to show interest and to listen and take me seriously. I try to butter her up. And this is, this is exactly what they're treating Jesus like a dog here. They, they come up to him and they just they, they, uh, they shower him in words of empty flattery. They flatter him, right? Look at what it says there in verse 14. They came and said to him, first they call him teacher. They don't recognize him as a teacher. They're opposed to him. They want him dead, right? right? Teacher, we know that you are true. Well, they want to kill him. We know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion, right? You aren't swayed. You, listen to it, <laughs> it's so crazy. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They come up to him and they're like, they just want to butter him up. They, just, they, they want to get him comfortable. They're playing good cop. They want to get him talking. They want him to feel comfortable and free to say the thing that's actually going to incriminate him and get him into trouble. They want him to speak freely so they can trap him. And so then they lay the trap. And here is the trap. That's the bait. Here's the trap. Simple question. It's a yes-no question. Is it lawful 
to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's a yes-no question. It's a yes-no question, right? Now, this is a very contentious question, if you haven't, or there's a reason why they asked this one. Because no matter this, in their mind, whatever Jesus answers, he's going to incriminate himself. Whatever Jesus answers, it's going to be a problem, right? There is no right answer here, at least in their minds. If he says to pay the tax, then he's pro-Rome. And he's no different than a tax collector that everybody hates. He's got this crowd of people around him that in verse 12, the, the, the leaders of the, of the temple, as they're there, they, they won't arrest Jesus and kill him right there because he's, they're afraid of the people because the people like Jesus. But if they can get Jesus to say, pay the tax, then the people are going to turn on Jesus and now they have opportunity to get him. The people will turn on Jesus because the people don't want Rome there. And if he says not to pay it, well, that's a problem too because then he can be accused of conspiracy against Rome, a promoter of zealot ideology. And during that time when Rome came in and occupied Israel, they, they put different poll taxes and different, different taxes in different regions of Israel, and what happened is you had people that were anti-tax. They didn't want to pay the Roman tax, and so they, there was what emerged of what they called zealot ideology, where these people would refuse to pay, encourage others, and basically get a group of people together to basically try to take, kick Rome out of, out, of, out of Israel. And then Rome would just come in and kill all of them. Like, if you were opposed, if you were vocally opposed to paying the tax to Rome, Rome would see you as an enemy and they would eliminate you. That's what they did. right? So if Jesus said, no, don't pay it, they would report him to the Roman officials as a publicly outspoken popular zealot telling people not to pay taxes. And then they could get rid of Jesus, no blood on their hands. So this is the trap. Pay it, people will hate you. And then we can take you out. Don't pay it, Rome will take you out. And Jesus then has a sticky situation he has to climb out of. But they've underestimated Jesus. They have sorely underestimated Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus responds to the trap. He takes a look at it, and his first immediate response is, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> you are, but you want to play? You want to play this game? Let's play. That, that's basically his response there. What he says in uh, verse 15, he says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, you want to put me to the test? Okay, put me to the test. Let, let, let's have fun. And that's, and that's basically, Jesus is going to show them his authority here. He knows their heart. He sees their ignorance. He, he, he knows they don't know who they're messing with. He knows they don't understand what's really going on, and he knows that their true intentions, that they've rejected God's authority and set aside God's law and are only using that phrase, is it lawful, invoking the law of God here? He, they're only doing that as a tool to try and now have God's authority in Christ arrested and killed and eliminated so they can establish and keep their own authority and keep their own profitable business in the temple running. They appeal to the law in an attempt to shut the authority of God out. 
That's what they're doing. Jesus sees it and he calls it out. That these leaders are ignorant, but Jesus knows. And he measures them rightly. And so he says, okay, let's play. And this is how he does. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius is a Roman coin. It's Roman currency. And Jesus doesn't have one. That's important to note. Jesus doesn't have a Roman coin on him. Also, the crowd around him probably wouldn't have one either because, well, they're peasants. And a denarius would have been an entire day's wage. So it's a, it's a lot of money, right? This is, a, this, is a, this is a costly coin. And so if anyone had one, it was going to be the more wealthy people in the group the religious leaders that Jesus is standing in front of. And so he asks them for a coin. Now in verse 15 and 16, not only do they hand him the coin, it says, notice there, he looks at it. He looks at it. He he studies the coin. And it has the image of Caesar on it. And uh, what's what's cool is we 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 have there's some of these coins that are still around today. You can see them. They've got you know scans of them online. People they're wealthy. You know coin collectors. They they find these kinds of things. And here's what's uh, Mark doesn't tell us this in the text, but this is this is what's rich about this. On this coin in Latin it says Divi Augfilius, which sent, which means son of the divine August or Augustus, son of the divine. Augustus, or to put it another way, this is the image of the Son of God. That's what Jesus is looking at. He's looking at an image of the Son of God. And if that's not crazy enough, if you flipped it over, you would read on it the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which in Latin means high priest. So you have the high priest of the Son of God on this coin. If you don't, if you don't already see where this is going, like this is this is this is intense, right? This is what Jesus is looking at. This is who Jesus is. This is God. So, Son of God, High Priest. In this, and Jesus looking at this coin, he sees, okay, they violated Commandment One to have no other gods before me, and they also have a graven image. This is a violation of Commandment Number Two. Jesus has in his hands from the people who want to get rid of him, the evidence of their violation of the law of God, and they're asking him what's lawful. Do you catch that? I mean, this is... They, they, they messed with the wrong dude, is what happened here, right? And he rubs it in their face by asking them publicly, I'm going to give it my own words, what idol is carved in this? What idol is carved into this coin? He says, it's recorded here, said different. Whose likeness and inscription is this? He's looking at the face. He's looking at the inscription. Whose is this? Rather than them trapping him, he's now trapping them. He's totally turned the tables on it. They walked into Jesus' trap. He turns the tables on them, and they literally hand him the evidence of their hypocrisy. And when they ask him if it's lawful to begin with, now he says, if you're carrying around a graven image of a Roman god in your pocket, then you need to submit to your gods. Right? If you want to carry around your little idols, 
with you, if we're going to talk about laws, we're going to talk about who owes what to who, then you need to pay the God that you claim to, that you're carrying around and walking around in your pocket. They said to him, this is Caesar's. And Jesus says, then give to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. Give, give the money to the God of whom you are, you're carrying around in your pocket. It's his. It's not yours. So Jesus here just exposes all of their hypocrisy, but he goes on, he goes on, not only exposes them as the ones being outside the law, but he also says to not only give to Caesar what is Caesar, but he says to give to God the things that are God's. Now, in, in, in Jesus' mind, as he says this, what we need to see, and this is what's great, is every commentator I read on this, they all see this as coming to the same conclusion. Um, that what Jesus is doing here is he's, as he compares, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and what is God's to God's, what he's showing here is that there is no distinction between what is Caesar's and what is God's. What he's showing here is that there's no real conflict between the idolatry of Rome and their political power and the reign of God over all the earth. God is reigning through it all, and so it's all God's, and if you've got it, you need to pay up because it's all God's. Jesus knows God. He is God. He knows the authority of God, and His authority presides over all and transcends all kings, all rulers, all dictators. God rules and reigns over all of them. The, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't see this. They saw their nation as ruled by God. They saw Rome as ruled by someone else. They underestimated God's rule, God's authority. And so they thought there, there was some legitimate distinction between money that would come from Rome and money that would come from Israel, the Israel copper coinage that was common in that day that people used. They thought, they thought that there was something legitimately different between the two in terms of what would be owed to who. But really, but really, God is the God over Rome. And so if you have Roman coinage, then you owe that to Caesar just as you would owe it to God. That's what he's telling them. Paul says it like this in Romans 13.1. He says, be subject to the governing authorities. And he's talking to people in Rome under Caesar. Be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And later in verse 6 in Romans 13, he says, For because of this you also pay taxes from the for the authorities, listen to this, the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed them. If you're carrying around your little Roman idols, then guess what? You're obligated to pay them, what he's saying. Uh, this doesn't suggest that Rome or any other evil despotic political power is good, as Rome was, an evil despotic political power. It simply means that God is King of Kings. It simply means that He is sovereign and rules over all things. And if the religious elite want to use Roman money, then for them to obey God, they must also obey their earthly masters that God has set over them. And then pay Caesar what he owes, what they owe. Now, it says there that they are amazed. It says in, in verse uh, 17, and they marveled at him with this. The reason they marvel is because God and Caesar, as we've already noted, were viewed almost as equals fighting out the battle. 
among these Jews. They would like to have said God's better or stronger, but they saw them as competing elements of power. And their ignorance here is put on display as Jesus shows them there is no competition. There's just no competition. As strong as Rome might be, there is no competition. Caesar is nothing more than a tool for God to accomplish His purpose. And so you could just pay to Caesar and it's not a big, it's not a big deal. This is why Acts 4 says what it does about God's rule and reign in the universe. You'll turn just a few pages over with me to the book of Acts in chapter 4. Listen to the way in which the writer of Acts, Luke, describes God's rule over the events of history through governments. In verses 27 and 28, he explains this. Is 27 and 28 the right one? Oh, I'm in John. That's why it doesn't look right to me. I've got to keep turning. Acts 24, or Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, this is Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is, this is how the believers, the Christian church, is praying to God in the midst of political oppression. They're saying, yeah, these political leaders that are oppressing us, yeah, you use them to kill Jesus, and you use them to accomplish your purpose in the gospel, and so we can trust you as we come to you and pray for you for help and boldness in the face of their persecution. And the point behind reading that is to show that God is in control of all politics, even the killing of His own Son. It was planned by Him. And they executed His plan, while in their mind they're thinking they're accomplishing their purposes. Whether it's political figures, or um, presidents, or dictators, whatever it may be, God organizes them in such a manner to accomplish His purpose. And here, these religious leaders, the people that are supposed to know the law, people that are supposed to know God, demonstrate that they don't know who God is. They underestimate Him. And now their minds are blown. And the rejection of God's reign is really exposed for what it is. They literally hand over the evidence that they are playing nice with Rome. Now, the, the crowd sees this. The crowd sees this. They see what has happened here. And for us, I wonder if we were in the crowd in the 21st century, how would we see this and appropriate it into our own world today? And I think for us, we have a very, a very important and a very natural way of applying what we see Jesus doing in this text. It's not just pay your taxes. That's true. We should do that. But that's not what Jesus is in, if we see that here, we've just seen we've not seen what the import of what he's doing, right? It's way more than just pay your taxes. For us, as we are coming up on a very contested contested election season, this passage has the ability to encourage us and help us and instruct us as we go through a very politically divided time. Our nation is truly divided, and this is instructive for us. So. I think what would be helpful for us is if we allow Jesus' words here to instruct us in terms of how we interact in this political season. 
Jesus does not see competition between God and the despotic, murderous, idolatrous, pagan, evil, colonizing, racist, and corrupt dictators in the world. That's what Caesar was. He was all of those things, right? And God doesn't find them to be even remotely competition. They're tools in his hand. So Jesus and Paul urge us to be to peacefully engage them without complaint and instead to pray for them, submit to them, and honor them. So the worst possible political leader there could be, someone like Caesar, we are to submit to him as a tool of God for our good. That is helpful for us in a contested and divided election season. Not because any of them deserve it, any of those corrupt leaders deserve our submission and our obedience, but because they're tools in the hand of God. So when we are seeing all the different presidential debates, when we go to the booth to vote in November, as we have discussions among one another about politics, this can lower the temperature. Because whatever happens is under the rule and reign of God, and whoever is there, we don't need to be upset about because God put them there. And God is accomplishing His purposes whether we think God's doing a good job of it or not. Right? We can rest in Him. We can ho have hope and peace and receive our political figures as gifts from God. Legitimate gifts from God and not fight against them. Even the most evil ones, even the ones who achieve their office through corruption or cheating, which all kinds of political leaders do that all over the world and throughout history. Whether it's a president, king, Caesar, or whatever, if they're in office, he, it, he or she is not there because they won. Whether by legitimate or illegitimate means. They are there because God put them there, and they're there because God put them there because He's going to glorify Himself through that, and He's going to work for our good through that. When you know that, when you know God sovereignly accomplishes His gospel and your joy in and through that work of being the King of Kings, you can see the Federal Reserve inscription on your dollar and not only pay your taxes, um, you can submit also to your political leaders as God's servants for your joy. Which means we can have legitimate political disagreements among one another and not turn into something stupid. Isn't that what is that is like good news in a world as divided and angry as ours is? That we can literally have Democrats and Republicans in the same church and not and not be up in arms about it because God is ruling and we can we can joyfully enjoy one another's differences of our political opinions, knowing knowing who ultimately sits on the throne of all governments. So there's that. I went on longer than that than I intended. Um, so the second point, God is not only king of kings, he is lord of life in verses 18 to 27. He is lord of life. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians are embarrassed, right? They're embarrassed. They back down. And so now the Sadducees here in verses 18 to 27, they're going to take their punch at Jesus. They're, they're still underestimating. You, you would think that they would see that and be like, oh, we better not mess with that guy. But no, they press in. They are still underestimating Jesus. 
The Sadducees here are another group of the religious elite, and they too want to stop Jesus. Not only do these leaders not know God as being king of kings, what is revealed here is they do not know him as the Lord of life. So they grossly misunderestimate him. Uh, the Sadducees in this culture were what we ha would have probably been called a more conservative political group, a, a conservative sort of political arm of the religious elite in the temple. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. All the rest they thought were fine, but these are the first five, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the only books that were, in their mind, truly from God and truly God's Word. And so they didn't take things seriously outside of that. And because in those books there's not really any like straightforward, explicit teaching about an afterlife and resurrection, they thought the whole idea of not just resurrection, but an afterlife itself was nonsense. They just they didn't believe in like a thing like heaven. Which is weird because a lot of times we as Christians, we just assume that Jewish people hold the same views of an afterlife as we do because we share the Bible, but this is not true. There's plenty of Jews even today that don't believe in an afterlife. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But that being said, these Sadducees denied not only the possibility of resurrection, they denied the possibility of an afterlife. Um, in uh, verse, uh, verse, yeah, verse 18, it says there explicitly that they say that there is no resurrection. There is no life after death. There is no bodily resurrection from the dead. In their mind, they thought that the way you live after death is by occupying space in the memories of those who come after you. So you just leave a legacy, people remember you, and that's how you live on. Right? Now, the Sadducees were a minority group. Most did believe in a resurrection. Most did believe in an afterlife, like most Jews do today, but there are still elements that don't. But these were learned men who were not only great thinkers, but they were also great talkers. And in their mind, they would pose a brain-busting question to Jesus to expose him as an intellectual inferior by running over him with a tough question to sort of uh, decrease the, the respect that the crowd had in Jesus. No doubt, the crowd saw what Jesus did to the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they were their, their confidence in Jesus was raised, and the, and the Sadducees are here to cut that down to give them an opportunity to take Jesus out. And so they, they try to give him this impossible, stupid question, and it's a stupid question. They give him a very stupid question, like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? That kind of question. It's, it's, it's clearly somebody who thinks they're smarter than what they really are, right? That's the kind of question they bring him. And their goal is they want to just tie him up and an impossible theological knot that he has no good or reasonable answer to. They think they're going to play a mind game with Jesus. Again, they underestimate him. They assume he cannot untie this theological question. So they want to make him a fraud and show him to be or, or a fraud or incompetent. So in verses 19 to 20, two, they put together what is, in my opinion, a very silly, stupid scenario. A woman is married to a man who dies. And in the Old Testament law, it says that her, his brother needs to marry the woman. It's called the Leverite marriage law. And so the man does, and then a whole series of husbands die with this woman. She's widowed over and over again, so that she has seven total husbands. She dies, and then they ask the big question at the end of verse 22. 
So in verse 22, he, or um, I'm sorry, in verse 23, uh, he says, uh, they ask him, in the resurrection, when all of these rise again, if you believe in resurrection, right? When all these rise again, whose wife is she going to be? For she had seven as her wife, right? No doubt, this was probably one of the reasons why they rejected the idea of resurrection. Not just because they couldn't find it in their Bible, it was also because they couldn't, they couldn't understand how it would even work if you had more than one spouse, right? Who, who's going to be with who in that scenario? Well, again, uh, <laughs> underestimated Jesus sorely here. Jesus exposes them rather than them exposing him. And he basically says that this is, what, this is what's going on. They don't know the Bible, and they don't know the power of God. That's what's going on. He shows them they don't know the Bible, and they don't know the power of God. That's what you find in verse 24. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. These are ignorant people, and because they don't know God, they grossly underestimate God. That's what's happening here. Just like the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, verse 25, if the, if the Sadducees thought they were going to bring a brain buster to Jesus, Jesus brings a brain buster to us. Because how do we handle verse 25? Verse 25, so this is Jesus' response. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> um, this, is, this is truly a difficult verse. Um, there are many who would say, well, that's just exactly what it's going to be. There's no marriage, no given in marriage. We're going to be like the angels. That's... But what does it mean to be like the angels? There's no female angels in the Bible. Not one. Does that mean there's no females in heaven? That, do, like, like there's, there's, so, there's so many problems with this. Do we, get, do, we, do we literally grow wings when we get to heaven? Like, there's just so many questions. There's no other place in the Bible that talks like this about heaven or about human relationships in heaven. This is the only place. It's cryptic. It's weird. It's hard to wrap your mind around exactly what he's saying. And so it's hard to... And so Christians, especially theologians, have been tied up in knots trying to figure out exactly what's going on here when he says this. Now, so I'm going to give you what I think is just the basic, clear point that Jesus is making in this. I think this is clear. I could be wrong, but I think that this is what's going on. What Jesus is saying is, I don't think he wants us to hear that and make dogmatic conclusions about who will or will not be married and to who in eternity. What he's doing is he's showing that our entrance into eternity in resurrection is an act of divine power, of God's, of God's manifestation of his power, is transformative in, in that it makes a real mark and a real difference, such that you can't make one-to-one -one comparisons between life on earth as it is now and what life will be like in the new world, in the new heavens and the new earth. He's saying for you that for you to assume 
that you can use marriage as the paradigm from Moses and the law and make application of that to what life is like in the new heavens and earth just reveals how little you know of the power of God and the mark that it makes on life. Right? He's showing you just don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of what resurrection actually accomplishes. And things aren't going to be the same. I don't know if there's going to be marriage in heaven or not. But what I do know is that whatever my relationship with my wife is now is going to be profoundly different in that reality. And that's what Jesus is trying to say, that, the, the, that you, your categories are just too small to think about this. You're thinking so small. You're using, you're using a paradigm that just doesn't fit the reality and the power of what's there. They're ignorant of the power of God. They're ignorant of the God's expression of His power and His authority. And then in verses 25 and 27, he not only reveals that they don't know the power of God, he, then he shows them you don't know your Bible. Now this is provocative. He's talking to the experts. He's talking to the PhDs. He's talking to the academics. He's talking to the religious elite. It's their job to know the Bible, and they know it better than anyone else in that culture. And he says, you don't know your own Bible. And then he quotes them a passage that we read earlier this morning in our Old Testament reading, Exodus chapter 3, in verse 6, and he does this in verse 26, where in verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus quotes this passage, and here he's making a point. He's saying, why does God say I am the God of these dead guys? These guys are all dead, and they've been dead for generations. Abraham, long gone. Isaac, long gone. Jacob, long gone before them. There's 400 years of slavery in Egypt between Joseph and Moses. They are dead. Their bones have disintegrated. They are worm food. And yet God's saying, I'm their God? If there's no life beyond death, if there's no resurrection then how could God say, I am their God? You'd have to say, I was their God. right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's pointing to God's declaration of His identity as being the Lord of life, the one who grants and gives life to people. And so, not, and not only life in this world, but all of life, such that He could say to people who are dead that, and talk about them as if they are really alive, because they are indeed alive, sustained by the power of God. He is not, as Jesus says, the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So if they're alive, that means resurrection, that means an afterlife must be real. Now, I don't, I don't have any time to talk about Bible interpretation because I know prior to this week, I mean, I've read this verse, but I've not read it and studied it to the depth that I have and noticed all the details in it. How Jesus grabbed that out of Exodus chapter 3 and saw resurrection in Exodus 3 is amazing. I, I mean, it's there. I see it. It makes sense. But man, it's just so cool how deep and how profound God's Word is. It just, it just reminds you how rich the Word of God is. That there are things and glories in it that you can look at and because of our small minds that underestimate God and are just ignorant, we just miss until we meet Jesus and he opens up the glory of his 
word to us as He does for them in this circumstance. Jesus, in these two ways, shows the Sadducees, He shows us that we don't know the power of God, nor do we know our Bibles very well. So they not only underestimate God like we do, but they reject God's authority over death itself and fail to see His authority transcending death, leading to new life and new resurrection. Their underestimation of God leads them to gross error and rejection of God's own authority. And this is exactly what Jesus came to accomplish in His Gospel. He came to show that He is not only King of kings, He came to also reveal and show us that He is the Lord of life. Which is why He goes up to a cross where He is crowned as King with thorns in His brow, where He sits upon a humble throne, the cross, and then he, as He dies, He establishes authority over death itself and raising to new life. Transcending death. Transcending the power of Satan and establishing His authority and His kingdom through the Gospel. And His sovereign rule comes out of His rule as King of kings and Lord of life. And it's in the power of God and through the reign of Jesus that we have hope to share in his life, that we have hope to be transformed by His power into the people that He's called and created us to be. And He's done this so that we can know Him. So we wouldn't be left ignorant, so we wouldn't be left underestimating Him. So we can believe and know His authority and submit to it with joy. He does this so we can engage Him. As we heard in Hebrews, so that we could come to His throne and be joyfully filled with delight as we get to know more and more of Him and His power. So we see resurrection. We say, yes, that makes sense because I know Jesus. It makes sense. I see what He's done in transcending death. And I've seen who God is in the Old Testament transcending death itself. We struggle to submit to the authority of God in our sin. All of us do. This is, unfortunately, the reality of our fallen condition. Not only in our sin, but in our attitudes, in our lack of love for one another. We struggle to find God's authority sufficiently compelling to answer our questions, to answer objections, to the complicated circumstances of our life, to the disappointments in our life. And yet, what Jesus shows us is that our struggle with God's authority is not not indicating a problem of God's rule and reign or a problem with God's authority. It's a problem of our ignorance. problem of our smallness of mind. It's our problem that we want to take earthly shadows in a law and try to put them as a paradigm on God that limit Him, as the Sadducees did here. And yet, God has revealed Himself to us. He's revealed Himself to us in Jesus that we can truly know God and find delight in His authority as our King and as our, as, as our life. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word, that we would, with David, meditate on it day and night, finding it to be a delight to our soul, finding wisdom, the authority and the power of God in His Word, to not only lighten up our understanding and give us knowledge, but to be the source of our life and flourishing so that we would delight in submitting to His authority. 
This is what Jesus was trying to do for these men. He wasn't just there trying to expose them for the sake of just trying to rule over them. He, was, he wanted them to see the hope that there is in the gospel, and they refused in their hardness of heart. You need to know this. Jesus came not just to give you a little, a short description of what he did in history 2,000 years ago to be like, yeah, that's true. That's what happened in history. He came that you might actually know God. He came that you would know him the way in even more intimately and even better than I know my own wife. He came to bring that to you. And that's, what, that's who Jesus is. He is the full revelation of God. And He invites you in to know Him in that way, even today. So this week, as you go about your business, as you face the complicated questions about the weirdness of Jesus' statements on marriage, and the resurrection, and whatever else comes, the things that confound you and tie you up in knots, as these questions might do, Will you go to God and know Him? Or will you look for little paradigms on earth to impose upon God in ignorance and thus underestimate Him? Will you discipline yourself in feeding your soul with the knowledge of God and His Word? God has spoken to us in Jesus. He's spoken to us in this book, the Bible. And God invites us to consume it, to know Him and delight in His authority receiving Jesus gladly, delighting in Him and the joys of His kingdom and His authority for you. And so God invites you to that. So let's, let's go to God in prayer. And I'm going to be praying Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 um, for us as we conclude um, as this prayer, I believe, um, may have been written in light of this very passage. Verse 14, so pray this as we pray this to God as we read it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, even for Emmaus Church, that according to the riches of God's glory, He would grant us to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That we being rooted and grounded in love, that we would have the strength to comprehend, to know with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of God, of Christ that surpasses our knowledge. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now Lord, to You, who are, is able to do far more abundantly than what we could ask or think according to the great power that You have working within us. Will You be glorified in our church and through Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.